0: Good evening. Tonight we are going to be talking about rubbish. You're listening to The Spotlight, and I'm not. Ladies, gentlemen, please take your seats. The Spotlight is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. I'm Mystery Matt, and you're listening to another Mystery Matt Spotlight Podcast. This evening, we've got Sarah and Nancy, and we are going to be doing another true crime. And if this sort of thing isn't your bag, baby, you know, try coming back next week. We should have something new for you. Anyways, I'm going to throw it over to Sarah to introduce uh, the topic and the situation we're dealing with tonight. And I'll even let Nancy say Hi.
1: Hi. So tonight we're talking about the case of the Golden State Killer. So this case um, has spanned close to 40 years until it was solved in 2018 using DNA in a game-changing way. Over the course of the 40-year investigation, we slowly see DNA technology catch up to this offender. It's not just DNA technology we see evolve because of this case, but we see the emergence of 911 emergency lines, DNA data banks, a fight for rape laws, Rape Awareness Week, began in funding for rape crisis centers. We see transparency in how police handle rape cases and victims, and sadly, great things are born out of tragedy. So Joseph James D'Angelo's name will go down as one of the worst serial offenders to be caught, and he will be connected to genetic genealogy, genealogy, which was used to identify him as the Golden State Killer 40 years later. Sorry, I got shadows. Anyways, on April 6th to 7th in 1974, a very strange burglar emerged in Vis- Visalia, California. Sorry, I think it's Visalia. I'm not sure. Anyways, in one night, he hit homes on South Linda Vista Street and South Whitney Street. There would be four more homes struck between the first two and on May 10th, 1974 on West Tulare Avenue. Six more, a cluster of homes, were burglarized on May 24th to May 27th. The media would name him the Visala, Visalia Ransacker as he entered people's homes, ransacked, laid out women's and sometimes the men's undergarments, and take nothing of value. <coughs> he would often steal worthless trinkets or photographs. He operated steadily from April 6th, 1974 to December 10th, 1975. Visalia Ransacker was pretty harmless, but that would change. On August 31st, 1975, the ransacker broke into the Monono residence on West Royal Oaks Drive, where he stole a 38 Miroku revolver. Just a few weeks later, on September 11th on South Whitney, the Visalia ransacker tried to abduct uh, 16-year-old Elizabeth Snelling from her bedroom. The commotion of the abduction alerted her father, Claude Snelling. Claude chased the offender down outside his home and was shot and killed by the same 38 Miroku revolver stolen from the Mono residence. The offender then kicked Elizabeth a few times before running off. Less than a month later, the Visalia Ransacker was out again, prowling on South Redwood Street between the night of October 3rd to December 10th. He prowled and attempted to break into 19 homes. On December 10th, 1975, Officer William McGowan came face to face with the Visalia Ransacker in an alley on West Kawiya Street Avenue. sorry, these names are weird. The offender shot an officer at Officer McGowan, shattering the glass and bulb of hit the officer's flashlight, sending shards into McGowan's skin and eye. He survived though. Between April 1974 and December 1975, Visalia Ransacker was responsible for approximately 110 burglaries, one attempt at kidnapping, one attempt at murder and one murder. After the attack on Officer McGowan, the Vasalia Ransacker disappeared burglary was no longer enough for joseph D'Angelo. the thrill and arousal was not there anymore we saw this same evolution with richard ramirez in our two-part night stalker episode it is not uncommon for serial offenders to evolve they usually start with porn or peeping into windows then for some burglaries become a part of their sexual arousal that thrill of being someplace you're not supposed to be touching things that aren't yours many offenders will masturbate in the homes it satiates them sexually until the thrill no longer cuts it and their fantasy evolves. They move on to sexual assaults or sexually sadistic murders.
0: Now, do they always go that way?
1: Not not all. It depends on... <coughs> some are different, right? Some will start with that kind of stuff and they'll just um, <coughs> gradually evolve. Some might not even evolve past peeping into windows. A lot of Like, teenage... I
0: get the fear of getting caught, right? Yeah, it's kind but of a usually when you're in that kind of situation, you're already with somebody in a car trying not to get caught. Whereas this one's more like, don't get caught while you're by yourself.
1: I think it's, look at it as more of a fantasy. Because a lot of sexual sadists and s- sadistic murderers, like serial murders, they will start a certain way, but they'll evolve. Mm-hmm. And those you'll even see, like, the MO will change, but the signature won't. And the MO is something that will progressively possibly get worse and worse. Like, you might start with a shooting, but then you might find more gratification with stabbing. Maybe stabbing won't do it. You want to see the life leave them. So you start, you go back to strangling, like asphyxiation or something. Like that MO will change, but the signature of like leaving your initial on the wall will never change or something. You know what I mean? Like, so the fantasy doesn't always last. So they need to change it to keep up that fantasy to make it feel better. So the Visalia ransacker was no more. However, rapes began taking place all around sacramento on june eighteenth, 1974 when 22 year old phyllis henneman was awakened with a flashlight blinding her her attacker blindfolded her and tied her up threatening to kill her and then he raped her <coughs> attack number two took place on july seventeenth, 1976 the next victims were sisters 15 year old peggy and her 16 year old sister sue and they had a similar experience as the first attack <coughs> Now I'm not sure if all the names are accurate some might have been changed and then there's also
0: a to protect the innocent Yeah
1: and there's also a plethora that I don't have names. So Attack number 3 took place on on August 29th same year this time three victims of a burglary and attempted rape but there was there are very little public details about this one. On September 4th 1976 it is this case that the Sacramento Sheriff's office brought in detective Carol Daly who would be one of the leads on what was dubbed the East Area Rapist by the (coughs) sheriff's office after the fifth attack. The fifth attack happened on October 5th, 1976. Just after six in the morning, Jane Carson heard her husband leave for work and her three-year-old son joined her in bed. Not long after, Jane thought her husband had returned, but that wasn't the case. Jane was blinded by a flashlight, as her attacker said through clenched teeth, Shut up or I'll kill you. He used shoelaces to tie both Jane and her son up and removed her son from the room. When he came back, he untied her legs and he raped her. He soon returned her son to her unharmed. But instead of leaving, Jane's attacker made himself comfortable by eating some food and going through her cupboards. Carol Daly and her fellow detectives noticed a pattern and similarities between Jane's attack and the first four. And now they had a serial rapist.
0: Not a murderer, but a rapist. Yes, he's just raping
1: at this point. As 1977 approached, the East Area Rapist's first victim, Phyllis, began receiving phone calls from her attacker. The FBI set up a recorder on her phone, and in January of 1978, Phyllis received a call which started with heavy breathing. Quote, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you, bitch. Fucking horror. I was gonna look for the audio of that, because I can actually find the audio of it, but I forgot. Uh, (laughs) so we'll post it in our wordpress i'll post a link to it in our wordpress the attacker was now displaying paraphilic paraphilic behavior paraphilias (coughs) are persistent and recurrent sexual interests urges fantasies or behaviors of marked intensity involving objects activities or even situations that are atypical in nature these phone calls elicit terror in his victim, and it's that terror that gets the offender aroused. This is called telephone scatag- scatagolia, scatologia, sorry. Telephone scatologia is when the individual is sexually aroused by making obscene phone calls. Who's had those before? I have. Yep.
0: No, they're, I don't think so. They're not that fun.
1: I was 12. <laughs> um, January eighteenth, 1977, the, the East Area Rapists are also known as Ear because they shortened the thing so it's ear so I might just say ear now because I want to say rape a little less than I'm saying um, so the ear attacked on an unknown victim and attack number 11 <coughs> happened January 24th was also an unknown victim attack number 12 happened on February 7th 1977 to Lisa and her mother there's a lack of details for this many others or, and for this one and many others as not all victims have gone public On February 16, 1977, the Miller family was going about their day when Mrs. Miller noticed a man watching through the window. So she called out to her 18-year-old son, Rodney, who took off running after the peeping Tom. The two hopped fences and ran a while until Rodney caught up to the man. They fought and struggled, and then the man shoots Rodney in the stomach. Luckily, Rodney survives. He gave a description of a white male, early to mid-twenties, under six feet, possibly five, ten, and the police were caught, collected footprints evidence in the garden which matched previous shoe impressions left by the ear this confirmed to law enforcement suspicions that the offender was stalking or watching his victims yeah so attacks number 13 and 14 took place on march 8th and march 18th after the 14th attack the sheriff's department hosted a community meeting regarding the attacks during during the meeting it gets mentioned that the offender only attacks when the man was no longer in the house or single women Shortly thereafter, on April 2nd, 1977, the ear attacks his first couple. Catherine and George Roger Rogers were asleep in their bed when they were awakened by a masked intruder shining his flashlight in their eyes. He forced Catherine to tie up her husband, and then she was tied up. Their attacker left the room and rummaged through their kitchen cabinets and returned with dishes, placing them on George's back and says, If you move, I will kill her and I will kill you. The attacker takes Catherine out of the room and sexually assaults her. It's like, oh, here, hold my beer. You know, like, I can do this.
0: Well, and he also gets her to tie him up because he's not going to punch out his wife Mm -hmm. for tying him up. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Less likely to fight back. Attack number 16 happens to another couple on April 15th. And then attack 17 and 16th took place on May 3rd and May 5th. Two more couples. The changed his modus operandi based on unintentional comment made during the com- community meeting. He likely saw this as a challenge. Attack number 19 took place on May 14th to Linda and her husband. The attack on this young couple was exactly like the previous four attacks on couples. Linda was 22 years old and she and her husband were new to the area. Earlier that day, when the young couple returned home after going out to dinner, the neighborhood kids tell them they saw a man in their yard. Later that night, They found a light blinding them, and just like the others, Linda is ordered to tie up her husband, and then she was tied up. Dishes were stacked on her husband's back, and their lives were threatened. He took Linda to the living room, hog-tied her, turned on the TV, and draped a towel over it to dim the light. He untied her ankles and assaulted her as he kept a knife at her throat. Linda described her attacker as being 5'9 to 5'10 and about 175 to 180 pounds. Three days later, on May 17th... Did you want... Oh, you move forwards. So I didn't know. Okay. Hmm? Doesn't sound
2: like a very big guy.
1: No, but kind of gets funnier when when more descriptions of him come in. Yeah, I'll, I'll get there. You'll laugh, and I do. Um, so three days later on May seventeenth, attack number twenty occurred, and on May seventeenth, attack twenty-two happened to Fiona and Philip Williams. May was a busy month for the year, and took three months off before attack twenty-two on September sixth to on another couple, followed by attack twenty-three on october 1st debbie and robert strauss were attacked number 24 on october 29th and her wedding ring and birthstone ring were stolen 21 year old victor hayes and his 17 year old girlfriend Rhonda ortiz were attacked number 25 victor believed that months earlier he had a confrontation at a liquor store parking lot where a man looked as if he wanted to kick victor's dog the two had a volatile confrontation so he believed that the attacker was done by the same man it has not been confirmed whether it was, but I think because Victor did deliver a victim impact statement at the Golden State Killers hearing, I think it was probably linked. So might have been linked to that. Um, number 26 took place on November 10th. Margaret, who was 12 years old, lived with her mother. The two of them were following this case very closely. Margaret knew what the ear did to couples. She was just shy of thirteen when she was awakened by a light shining in her eyes and a man at the end of her bed. Margaret stated in multiple documentaries that she knew instantly who he was and what was about to happen. He tied her up, left the room, and went into her mother's room before going into the kitchen. Margaret knew that if he put the dishes on her back, he was going to rape her mother, and if he put the and if her mother got the dishes, she knew she was the one who was going to be assaulted. He returned without dishes and during her assault, Margaret refused to show him fear. He said he'd kill her and her mother, and and dryly she'd respond, I don't care. Margaret said she was defiant and acted nonchalant towards him, and he left unsatisfied. So, he clearly gets off on the fear. Attack number 27 would be the last known attack in 1977 and occurred on December 2nd with an attempted rape. Detective Carol Daly led many meetings with women in the Sacramento area, telling them to fight back, tells them not to be polite about it. She held these meetings to teach women about rape, how to report it, but most importantly, how to fight back. On January 28, 1978, Attack 28 took place, leaving two female victims in its wake. Attack 29 was very different. Brian, aged 21, and his 20-year-old wife, Katie Magury, were out walking their dog when they encountered a man. He would later be discovered to be the ear. Brian, who was a sergeant in the Air Force, had a violent encounter with the man, and the couple f- fled, but they were chased down. He shot Brian twice and Katie once. Both would die at the hospital before they could give a description. Bob Hardwick didn't think too much about finding the lo- uh, finding the lock from the garage leading to the house being broken. Two days later, on March eighteenth, 1978, Bob and his wife Gaye, Woke up to light shining in their eyes. Their attacker tells them he needs money and he makes Gay tie Bob up. And then she was tied up, both with shoelaces. That would be his signature right now, would be the shoelaces. Um, he rummages through the house and then sits outside and drinks a beer. He returns and places dishes on Bob's back and takes Gay into another room and assaults her. The hard west attack took place in Stockton, which was about an hour outside of Sacramento in a completely new jurisdiction it took a while for the stockton attack to be connected to the sacramento attacks
2: sorry i have a question
1: yeah why the dishes on the back to alert him oh sorry matt was not quick enough yeah to alert him if the if the guy moves
0: so if the guy moves the ear gets alerted and then could kill the wife yeah. yeah it's an alarm system
1: yeah because as soon as you move those dishes are gonna go clink 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 right? it's
0: clever but it's still completely disgusting
1: yeah. yeah it is for me look at that it shows an intelligence yeah. um but when you are reading like when you're hearing about his story and stuff there's there's a little bit of a lack of intelligence there too like he's a very organized defender. Well, if
0: you can't you know figure out what's right and wrong there's already a lack of intelligence
2: hmm for sure
0: there has to be right
2: yeah well it's the fact of you know that it's wrong that you do it anyway even though if you know the
1: right from wrong and that is why you when you plead insanity if you if you have shown that you know right from wrong you can't take that insanity no plea you can't because they'll just say hey you knew you're right from wrong yeah. it's called the mcnaughton rule so yeah and you chose you chose to, to do this. this way yeah. yeah knowing that there's gonna be consequences absolutely so but yeah like it's crazy but he's no he's quite smart in certain aspects but things do catch up <laughs> excuse me attack 30 what is that number 31 31 took place on june 5th to a couple in modesto followed by attack 32 on June 7th to a 19-year-old college student 90 miles north of Modesto in Davis. A few weeks later, attack number 33 took place in Modesto, and then less than 22 hours later, attack 34 took place in Davis, both on June 23rd. And both attacks were on couples. Well, he was driving back and forth with just the sole purpose to do this in completely different jurisdictions. So, my guess is that he was traveling <coughs> for some reason for work or something. No, it sounds like he
0: was trying to mislead, make it seem like two different people, make it seem like a...
1: It's hard to do when you have the same th- signature, the dishes, the shoelaces,
0: Well, the couples. Like, he might not have thought that far into it, you know what I mean? He may have been able to figure out an alarm system, but not realize that he's using the same alarm system every time.
1: Yeah. But he's just cold. He attacks a single female on July 6th. Attack number 36, 37, and 39 were all on couples on September 6th, October 7th, 18th, and 28th. Attack number 40 was to a single female on November 4th. I'm trying to go through the attacks as quick as possible because there's not much information. (laughs) Attack 41 on December 2nd was to Joanne and her husband. And attack number 42 was to a single woman in Gladys. And Esther was attacked on the same day on December 8th. The first attack in 1979 was to a couple on April 5th. Attacks number 45 and 46 took place on June 2nd to a single woman and another couple on June 11th. Attack number 47 took place on June 25th to 13-year-old Mary. She would did be 13. Al- I did. Oh. Remember though Margaret was 12.
0: Well, oh, yeah, it's not good either way. No.
1: She would be the last successful attack the year will have. The ear moved his attacks to the Santa Barbara area. An attack number 48 on a couple would not go as planned. July 6th, a man wakes up to find an intruder standing at the end of his bed as he was pulling on a ski mask. The man started yelling at the intruder, allowing his wife to run out, and then he followed his wife outside. The intruder escapes. On October 1st, attack number 49 also doesn't go as planned. At 2 a.m., the couple wakes up, light shining in their eyes. As usual, he forces the woman to tie up her husband and then (coughs) is tied up and the offender goes through their home. Before bringing the woman to the living room, he lays her on the floor and asks where her purse is. He goes to the fridge, allowing her to get free and run out the door. The offender catches up to her and brings her back inside and re-ties her up. Meanwhile, the man gets loose in the bedroom and runs into the yard screaming for help. His wife gets free again. This time the offender runs because he's lost all control. Luckily, the police were close by, and the attacker steals a bicycle and manages to get away. The couple were traumatized, but thankfully unharmed.
0: Well, they did the best so far.
1: Yeah. Attack number 50 happened on December 29th, 1979 in Santa Barbara. A couple pulls <laughs> up to their home and sees an intruder inside through the window. The intruder flees, and the couple is unharmed, but their dog has been severely beaten. That poor dog didn't do anything to that guy. <sighs> okay. So that had to be the final straw for the ear, who had to have been very frustrated. During the last bunch of attacks, the media had reported on the cases, revealing certain case details, including the use of shoelaces. Soon after, the ear started taking the laces with him. We're going to be getting into some profiling. So the profile done on the East Area Rapist was done in 1977 and revealed that he had controlled speech Serious inflexible demeanor. While his stress tolerance is high, he requires a great deal of information to maintain control or reduce anxiety when in a stressful situation. If sitting, he wouldn't be able to remain still and likely move his feet or body and would avoid eye contact. Has a history of peeping and prowling and continues that behavior before attacking, which creates excitement for him. He uses burglary to cover up his true motive. If under stress or uncertain, he likely talks to himself. And during one of these attacks, one victim overheard her attacker say, I hate you, Bonnie. He is planning, prowling, and hiding in bushes, evading detections. He's at the height of of a paranoic fantasy. Peeping creates sexual arousal, paraphilic behaviors, which involves unusual and socially (coughs) unacceptable sexual practices. It's a sexually, sexually deviant behavior. He wants to have complete mastery over his victims and gets off on their fear and the control over his victims. Is about humiliation and dehumanizing the women. Repeated rape, repeated sodomy, and repeated oral copulation. He's obsessed with what he was doing, and it's all that mattered to him. Like most serial rapists, rape no longer works for them. The fantasy is boring, and so they evolved. With the last couple of attacks failing, he evolved. On December 30th, in this early morning, Dr. Alexander Manning and her boyfriend, Dr. Robert Offerman, would become the first victims of what the police ...referred to as the original Night Stalker or Ons. Dr. Manning's... Doctors Manning and Offerman decided to stay at his condo that night... ...and around 2.30 to 3 3 a.m., an intruder breaks in... ...binds (coughs) both doctors and possibly rapes Dr. Manning... ...and shoots them dead. He then sticks around and eats some of Dr. Offerman's Christmas dinner leftovers. On March 13, 1980, Charlene and Lyman Smith are also murdered in their bed. Lyman, age 43, was a former district attorney and a partner in a developmental firm, and was being considered for judgeship. Charlene, age 35, was raped, and then both were bludgeoned to death with a log from their woodpile. Lyman's 12-year-old son, Gary, found their bodies. On August 19, 1980, newlyweds Keith and Patrice Harrington were bound. Patrice was raped, then covered with bedspread and bludgeoned to death. Keith's two older brothers would be instrumental in getting a bill passed in California in 2002, that would make convicted inmates give their DNA for entry into a database this bill gives permission to use force to obtain DNA only 32 states had a felon of sorry skip the page um, had a felon DNA d- database in 2003. Bruce and Ron Harrington helped support this bill as, <clears throat> as well as proposition 69 the DNA fingerprint Unsolved Crime and Innocence Protection Act. Like I said, a lot of good things have been born out of this case, unfortunately. So when
0: it's related, to, like, is that all related to rape that they made that act? Mostly, yes. And they named it 69? That's not exactly. I don't think it was
1: just rape, but it was also the murders because his brother, their brother was not raped. He was Still, killed, not
0: murdered. Very... Like, it's... I hope that's coincidental. I think it's just the just... number
1: that they landed on. But yeah, I knew you would go there. Manuela Whithoon was a young married woman whose husband had a lot of health issues. 28 year old Manuela was afraid of being alone at night and returned from visiting her husband in the hospital on the eve of February 5th, 1981. Usually someone would stay with Manuela, but no one was available <coughs> this particular night. The ons breaks in, binds, and assaults, then murders Manuela. Sherry Domingo and her daughter moved into a relative's home while it was up for sale in order to take care of the property. Sherry's daughter, who was 15, had an argument with her mother and left for a few weeks. She called home just a few days before July 27, 1981, and then ended up in another fight. The night of July 27, Sherry and her boyfriend, Greg Sanchez, became the next victims of Ons. They were tied up, Sherry was assaulted, and as Gary tried to get away, he was shot in the face and then both were bludgeoned. Seminal fluid was found... Wait, on wait,
0: wait Why would you need to be shot in the face and then bludgeoned?
1: Overkill. He was pissed.
0: Holy That's crap. Anger.
1: That's anger. He was mad. It, things didn't quite go the way he wanted. One tried to get away, so he had to make sure he paid for it. Ugh. Seminal fluid was found on the bedspread, not in Sherry's body. Law enforcement could see that this attack did not go as planned due to the clear lack of control the offender had over the couple evident by gary sanchez being found in the open closet and not near his girlfriend in the bed like the others (coughs) greg's movement had interrupted sherry's rapes the scene was very disorganized after the double murder of, of sherry domingo and greg sanchez five years go by and the original night stalker goes dormant there are many reasons why a serial murder goes dormant it could be their cooling off period as murdering a couple could be physically exhausting He could be in jail for another unrelated crime or moved away. In some cases, they've even started a family. In the case of BTK, Dennis Rader, who stopped killing for a while after the birth of each of his two children, he would start up again for brief periods, but family life would get in his way, as would aging. Perhaps that could be the case with original Night Stalker. Uh, In 1982, the East Area Rape Victim Number 24 was working a shift at Denny's in Sacramento when she was called to the phone. When she picked up the receiver, she heard a chilling, familiar voice who said to her, Remember me? I'm going to come over and F you again. You're going to suck my C again. She was terrified all over again. It had been five years since her attack in 1977. How did he know to call her there? She wasn't working at Denny's in 1977. Perhaps he ate in the restaurant and saw her, or worse, maybe she unknowingly served him. On May 5th, 1986, 18-year-old Janelle Cruz was looking after the house while her parents were on vacation. The night before, she and her friends, who stayed over, had heard some noises, but that night Janelle would be alone. She would go out to meet up with friends, and but she got home around 10.45. She would be brutally attacked, raped, and bludgeoned to death, possibly by a wrench. Her murder would be the most brutal of them all, but would also be the last. So why would he stop with Janelle? Some experts surmise that with the emergence of DNA testing was a catalyst to why he stopped. He knew he left a lot of DNA in the wake of the 10 years he'd been active. Law enforcement had no suspects, no fingerprints, only the modus operandi linked to 12 murders. In the rapes, they had the MO of the shoelaces, the dishes being placed on the mails in the home, and even some shoe prints. They had poem they had a poem written by the East Area Rapist that was sent to the Sacramento Bee in 1977. This is the poem. It makes no sense to me. I don't know if you guys can make a tail of it. Jesse James has been seen by all. And Son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptations to call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Sorry, he wrote that? Yeah. Allegedly. Re- read that again. Jesse James has been seen by all, and Son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptations call. Sacramento should make an offer to make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Oh, he wants to be famous, which they all do. The, yeah, they all what, do. That's what that
2: is. It's, it's it's a i to glorify me,
1: glorify me, but don't catch me. I don't want to be caught.
2: It's the narcissist narcissism mm-hmm. in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Sheriff's Department had no... Sorry, one more thing. Okay.
2: It's also the narcissism part of it where it's, I'm owed something. Yeah. And it's, you know, that part where he says, Sac- was it Sacramento or something they can
1: offer? Yeah, Sacramento should make me an offer. Yeah. To make a movie of my life. Yeah. 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 Praise me. Give me fame, fortune, yeah. everything I want. Um. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So, the Sheriff's Department had no fingerprints in the ear case. They have plenty of biologicals which contain DNA. In 1994, they run the DNA from all the cases despite the fact that prosecuting the rapes could not be possible due to the statute of limitations on rape and sexual assaults. Which, if you ask me, there should be no statute of limitations on rape and sexual assaults.
0: I agree. If it happened, it happened. Yeah. But also... If you have If you go to report it and it's been 20 years, expect to have to prove it yeah instead of like all accounts of reported rape should be taken seriously however there are false reports of reported rape and this does destroy many innocent men's lives and
1: and destroys the credibility of women who actually have been assaulted
0: so if you're going to report it please don't wait the 20 years and if you do rate the wait the 20 years just remember, you're going to have to prove it after mm-hmm. twenty years. That means there's been no trauma test done, there's been no yeah. DNA collected, but you're going to have to prove after twenty years. So, yeah. like, good luck it's with that. It's going to be very difficult. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if it happens, report. But in immediately. these cases,
1: they have the biologicals. They have the DNA from these cases. So there there should be no limitation on prosecuting, but because right. there is, they cannot, but they can at least use it to connect.
0: I, I agree. There should be no limit to how long, mm-hmm. but just know it's yeah. going to be harder to do so after the fact.
1: For sure. In 2001, victim number 14 receives a phone call 24 years after her rape by the same man responsible and says to her, remember when we played? Law enforcement knew their offender was still alive. That same year, the DNA from the East Area Rapist case is matched to the DNA left by the original Night Stalker murder cases. Crime blogger, writer, and the wife of actor Pat Oswalt dubbed, dubbed the ear and on as the Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer was linked to at least 51 attacks and 12 murders. They just didn't know who he was yet. Michelle McNamara worked this case so hard, her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, was published after her death and finished by Paul Haynes. I only mentioned this because she was very pivotal in the case and in, in connect helping connect things.
0: Nancy needed gloves.
1: Oh you're so cold. <laughs> Weak- yeah, I know, right? This is our last case outside.
0: Probably. Yeah, most likely. It
1: yeah. was a lot warmer earlier, but now after dinner it wasn't so much. <laughs> so weekly the DNA would be run through CODIS, but no matches were ever made. They have they had dna knew he used a variety of weapons and always used the shoelaces to bind his victims those ligatures became his signature they never changed those ligatures carried him through the rapes to the murders in 2010 district attorney ann marie schubert who felt very connected to the case created the deceased inmate project this initiative would see dna collected from deceased inmates and entered into the database they ended up having 25,000 DNA profiles to go through. In 2016, the FBI released three of the many composite sketches they had from their most reliable witnesses from 1970s to the and 1980s. This is all well and good to to know, but how exactly did the cat how did they catch the Golden State Killer? This is where it gets gone and it also gets very complicated. Um in mid to late 1917 or ni- 2017, oh my god. 1917. They didn't even have technology back then. Um, in mid to late 2017, it came to law enforcement that Parabon Nano Labs had taken the lead in genetic genealogy. Uploading DNA profiles, they could get a very accurate description of a person: eye color, skin color, hair color, and ethnic background. They were also leading a new development of using DNA to trace family trees. Lead Golden State Killer Paul Holes, who had been working this case for 24 years, was coming up for retirement and was willing to try anything. In order to utilize genetic genealogy, they needed untested DNA. Luckily for Detective Paul Holes, the medical examiner in the Smith murder case made a secondary rape kit from Charlene Smith. The second kit was untouched. Using that DNA, they developed a DNA profile. And in January 2018, uploaded that profile into a public genetic genealogy database called GEDmatch. Now, I debated whether or not to explain DNA and how they use this to solve crimes. I'll be putting that up for sure on our our um, on our WordPress and link it in our Mystery Map Fan Club Facebook page. I do actually go into it more on this because it's I kind of realized it was that important to go into it.
0: Uh, just so you know, you're at about 35 minutes, so depending on if you want to do a 2 part or a super episode. I'm on page 15. Out of? 22. Oh, okay. So we'll just do a... Long one. Yeah, okay.
1: Okay. Excuse me, I'm talking. (coughs) This DNA is uploaded and matched to 25 third cousins related to the great-great-grandparents. Using public records such as obituaries, birth and marriage, and death certificates, as well as new paper, newspaper articles, they worked the family tree backwards. So this tree start, started in 1820s, and it took four months to build. The tree had over 1,000 people on it. They ne- needed to remove all females, anyone who sees, who's, whose age doesn't fit the timeline, anyone who was not in the geographical location at the time of the murders. They were left with six possible offenders. They knew their offender had blue eyes, and only one person of the six had blue eyes. They had a name, Joseph James D'Angelo, and he was 72. Days before Hole's retirement, he follows D'Angelo's movements, waiting to grab his DNA to compare it to the offender's profile. Hole sees him working on a car and riding his motorcycle. Finally, they follow him to a store, and while D'Angelo was inside, they swab his car door handle and put a rush on it. The DNA had commonalities, but they needed to be sure, and now Holes was retired. On April 23rd, 2018, detectives obtain a tissue from D'Angelo's trash and immediately send it for testing. This time, it's a 100% match. Joseph James D'Angelo is the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker. He is the Golden State Killer. On April 24th, D'Angelo was arrested very carefully to prevent the possibility of him hurting somebody. He was arrested for 12 counts of murder and search warrants were served for his home and vehicles. They dug holes, ripped up carpets, and found a lock on something inside his granddaughter's playhouse. It was only then they were able to connect him to the Visalia Ransacker cases and the murder of Claude Snelling. On April 27th, D'Angelo was arraigned. In a shocking appearance, D'Angelo was wheeled in in a wheelchair, looking old and unnerving. (laughs) But no one was buying this act. There's video of him inside a cell exercising, and climbing like a monkey to clean. He was fit as a fiddle, not some crippled old man. Well played, though. Nice try. It was
0: a good shot. Yeah, yeah. Nice try, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Joseph James D'Angelo was born in Bath, New York, on November 8, 1945. His father was in the Air Force, and his family moved a lot. The D'Angelo family moved to Rancho Cordova in 1959, and his parents separated, and he and his siblings were abused, and Joseph took the brunt of it. The D'Angelo kids were neglected and locked in a closet. Joe may have witnessed his father molest his seven-year-old sister around the age of nine or ten. Allegedly that's there's nothing to prove that. Um, he began peeping in his teens and allegedly killed a dog with firecrackers. He joins.: oh. Yeah, I know I can you, oh I've seen that I've seen pictures of dogs with had their muzzles blown off by firecrackers. It's disgusting. Um, and it's disgustingly sad too at the same time. Um, He joins the Navy during the Vietnam War, but leaves in 1968 and enrolls in Sierra College. In 1970, Joseph gets engaged to Bonnie, but he eventually breaks it off, or she eventually breaks it off, I should say, in D'Angelo spirals. He attempts to kidnap her from her bedroom at gunpoint to get married in Las Vegas. Luckily for Bonnie, her father steps in. As far as I could find, no charges were brought on to D'Angelo. Recognize that name? No. In one of his attacks, he said, I hate you, Bonnie. Oh, Yeah, now we know where that came from. Uh, In 1972, he goes to California State University in Sacramento and gets a degree in criminal justice, setting up a career in law enforcement. He then interns at Roseville (coughs) Police Department. In 1973, he moves to Exeter, California, and he's hired by the Exeter Police Department. On May 18, 1973. And while working in Exeter, he married Sharon Huddle in 1973. And Sharon would go on to become a divorce attorney. Less than a year after joining the Exeter police, the burglaries in Visalia, which is 15 minutes west of Exeter on April 6, 1974, began. D'Angelo was 28 when he was promoted to daytime investigator in
0: 1974. So this was
1: a cop. Yes. Yes.
0: All three of these serial killers, rapists, all these different titles, is a cop.
1: To a certain point, yes. Ew. On January 14th, 1975, Exeter Police Department formed an anti-burglary task force and D'Angelo was placed on the task force. He would advise homeowners on how to best protect their homes. D'Angelo leaves the police department in Exeter shortly after it was announced that Visalia's police chief was going to take over. Exeter's police chief spot i oh, sorry, take over the Exeter police speech. I left a big space there and I can't read, apparently. Um, so with the Exeter's police chief coming in, yeah, or the yeah. um, Visalia one coming into the Exeter, yeah. So some speculate D'Angelo left because he was afraid of being recognized as Officer William McGowan's shooter and the Visalia ransacker. He moves to Auburn, California, and is hired by the Auburn Police Department in August 1976. At this time, he already has two attacks as the East Area Rapist under his belt. As a patrolman in Auburn, he was seen as lazy and lackluster compared to him being well-respected in Exeter. He had complaints of being rude, close talker, and always touching the person he was talking to. Well, down in Sacramento, D'Angelo was caught trying to steal a hammer and dog repellent and would be fired by Auburn Police Department in July 1979. Five months later, the murders began on December 30th. And getting fired from a job is what they would call a stressor. Which would pr- push him further into evolving from the rapist to the murderer.
0: Yeah. Be an extra button push.
1: Yeah. Like he's he's spiraling at this point. <clears throat> so. Uh, in April 1980, Joe and Sharon D'Angelo bought a home in the Citrus Heights neighborhood in Sacramento. The first of three daughters was born in September of 81, their second in November of 86, and finally their third in May of 89. In 1991, Sharon filed for divorce from Joe, but they never finalized it, but remained separated. His three daughters attended Montessori schools and were all involved in horseback riding. A neighbor recalled they were a happy family for the most part, but he also remembers D'Angelo yelling at himself or his kids. He also recalled D'Angelo leaving death threats on their answering machine because of something stupid. (coughs) He also remembers D'Angelo getting aggressive with children and women and felt comfortable scaring them, but was a coward if he was an adult male. After D'Angelo's arrest, Sharon finally and legally divorced him. Before he was arraigned, D'Angelo gave a brief (laughs) half-ass confession while referring to an inner personality called Jerry, who forced him to commit the crimes. Not sure why these guys always try this defense. It never works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, it, you almost hear it all the time, right? It's like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. That oh, was the dog. Danny's
0: not here, Mrs. Torrance.
1: Yeah, it never fucking works. On March 4th, 2020, D'Angelo offered to plead guilty if they removed the death penalty, but the district attorneys declined the offer. However, on June 29th, the DA decided to offer the removal of the death penalty, and D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 counts of murder in the first degree with special circumstances. That's murdering, j- murder during a commission of burglaries and sexual assaults and 13 counts of kidnapping. So Joseph James D'Angelo was sentenced to 11 life sec- sentences without the possibility of parole plus an additional life sentence and 8 additional years on August 21st, 2020. So he's at 70, well let's see, he was 72 and 18, so he would have been what, 75? 74 when he was finally arraigned so he's probably yeah he, life sentence isn't gonna be that long for him so he won't make it no probably not long. so i only touched briefly on using genetic genealogy as a tool to solving this crime in a way it's not the first time that law enforcement tracked their suspects suspected offender using dna from a relative using this method was very complex before they would have a suspect and would find a son or daughter's dna to see if there was a familial match. Using genetic genealogy is different. They don't have a suspect to even try getting a familial match. They have to upload it into public ancestry DNA type sites and hope a relative with commonalities is in their DNA profiles. I said I've saved this for WordPress, but I need to expand, so bear with me. These words are hard to say. So Each of our cells have 23 (coughs) pairs of chromosomes, one from our mother and one from our father. There are places on some of our chromosomes with these short sections of DNA that repeat called short tandem repeats or STRs for short. We all have different numbers of repeats. What you find in CODIS, which is the combined DNA index system, is STR profiles. And CODIS contains over 18 million STR profiles. The chances of people having the exact same number of STR at each location is astronomically small. Okay, single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, also referred to as SNPs, show a difference in a single DNA building block. These are responsible for discovering certain genetic factors like hair, eye color, and even if you have complex diseases. You have roughly over 700,000 SNPs, which can tell you where your ancestors come from, medical conditions, and how closely you are related to someone. In these public and private genealogy databases, they use the DNA... from from their users to make profiles of their STRs and SNPs to track their family tree. The Golden State Killer was the first case to use these public databases in in 2018, and they changed the game. In 2019, Christopher Tapp had his murder conviction overturned thanks to genetic genealogy. He had spent almost 20 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, and it was the use of what is now referred to as forensic genealogy that proved his innocence. One of the biggest concerns is privacy, People are concerned their DNA is now free to be used by police, but that has changed. AncestryDNA.com and 23andMe never have and do not allow law enforcement access. Some other companies are following their example. Jedmatch and Family Tree have uh, have an opt-in option, it means when you upload your DNA profile, you now have a chance to either allow law enforcement to access your profile or not to. Problem is, say you choose to opt out, but your third cousin in Surrey, B.C. chooses to opt in. You're still on that family tree. You have no control over what your family chooses to do. Would you opt in or would you opt out?
0: See, we did the the fingerprints and stuff as kids, yeah. but I don't know about a full DNA thing. That's kind of mine. Not that I'm up to anything, but... Like, okay, so if they needed my DNA to find someone who was related to me, then yeah, okay, I would.
1: But you wouldn't opt in. And, like, say you put your DNA in, in GEDmatch.
0: Yeah, I would. No.
1: you want to f- develop your family tree. And no. somewhere along the line, the police call you say, hey, do you know so-and-so from this? Yeah, I do. That's my second cousin.
0: Like, for something that's recreational, like 23 and Me and that kind of thing, and just learning your family gene- genealogy, uh, no, I, I don't feel it should be. Like, if you want to opt-in, that's fine. That's, but you that's wouldn't
1: personally opt-in. N-
0: not unless it was directly needed for a specific reason. Like, why do you need it? Like, w- w- why?
1: See, once you opt-in, though, they don't have to ask your permission to search it. You've yeah. already given it. So they'll yeah. search it anyways.
0: And that's what I mean. Like, I- I'm not a cattle that you can put a tag on. Yeah. But if me putting that tag on helps somebody else, then yes.
1: Yeah. What about you,
2: Nancy? I don't know. I think if you're doing something like that, you're automatically giving permission because everything is out there anyway.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Like I said, if your cousin from Italy does it and they connect you through that, and even though you opted out, they're still going to know you're connected, right? Yeah.
2: Once it's online, it's kind of online. You really can't do much about it. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would do anything... Like that, like the 23 me or Ancestry or anything like that? I have no desire to. Yeah, no, I don't have a desire to. Either people that I at work that I work with and that I know have done it and they're like, oh, look at this and look at this. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, okay. Like it is really-
1: it, it Am doesn't... I curious to know if my background is exactly what I've been told it is? Yeah. <laughs> but am I going to spend the money to find out? No, I'll just live in my little illusion bubble. Well,
2: I mean, if you were adopted, I think it would be a That's, different yeah. scenario. But I mean, like- I don't know. I don't, I don't think I, I have no desire to anyway, but if I did, it, it would be, and I don't have a desire to because then everything is
1: out there already. Yeah. So like, well, let's say I did upload my DNA to gen Match to find my ancestries. I would choose to opt in. Um, because I feel like it's my duty that if there's a criminal in my back family background, that they should pay restitution. They should, yeah. they should pay for it. And if it's my DNA, that brings the police to their attention or their, them to the police's attention by all means because that person needs to pay. Yeah. And clearly they would, they would use this as more of a last resort, not let's go right do this. Let's go right do this right away. No, they're not going to do it right away. They're using it mostly for cold cases. They're not using it for a case that happened yesterday, you know? Yeah. So, but I would opt in because like I said, I I think that person should be held accountable.
2: But. I really messed up if it was somebody close to you.
1: <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, oh, man. It's like, oh, what did my brother do now? I had
2: no idea. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So, there are some guidelines that law enforcement has to follow to access these public DNA databases. (laughs) They can only upload DNA from sexual assaults, identifying remains, DNA recovered from the scene of a homicide or child abductions. Some will only help in the case of homicides or sexual assaults. Each site can differ. So... They're not just doing it willy-nilly, but they're doing it for specific things, which for me, if my DNA can help bring a child who may have been abducted by, like, I don't know, my second cousin, then, and, they bring that kid home safe, then to me that's worth it. Yeah. You know? But to each their own, right? So, since the Golden State Killer was captured using genetic genealogy, over 70 more cases have been solved during this tool, or using this tool. There are approximately 650,000 sexual assault cold cases that have DNA available for testing and 100,000 murder cases that are cold with DNA waiting to be tested, including JonBenet Ramsey's case, which I think they're starting to look at using this tool for. We hope to have an update on that soon. Um, This is a revolutionary game changer in technology for law enforcement. It easily could be used to solve murders and sex assaults quicker. With the introduction, with the introduction of for, for-
0: let
1: me do that over again. With the introduction of forensic or investigative genetic genealogy, we could see a decrease in crime due to offenders being wary of leaving DNA behind, even the smallest amount. Crime scene technicians always say, when you commit a crime, you always leave something behind and always take something with you. And genealogy, like that of criminal profiling, is just a tool in law enforcement's arsenal. There will be times where it might not pay off, where maybe a state or province rules against this technique. Either way, it's an incredible advancement. So with the Golden State Killer case solved after nearly 40 years, some closure to his victims have finally come to fruition. So many things have happened because of this case. Rape Crisis Hotlines, 911 Emergency, the Deceased Inmate DNA Program, Convicted Inmate DNA Database, changes to rape laws, and funding for rape crisis centers, and as well as the way that law enforcement should and have always should have been looking at rape cases. So sometimes out of the ashes of tragedy, positive changes rises up like a phoenix.
2: I like that. Sorry. I like that there's a lot of good things that come out of it.
1: I love that about certain cases when something good can come out of it, you know. There should
2: be a positive that come out to the ne- of the negative. And that's
1: why I didn't want to leave it out. I I wanted to make sure that people realize that because we have 911 emergency lines, it's because of this case. Yeah. They they wanted something so that people had a quicker access to to get help when something happened. And I think that's important and I think that is something that has benefited everybody in the long run. Um
0: One good thing about it is that, thank God, it wasn't, like, X amount of serial rapists going around. It was just, like, one guy who had a whole bunch of titles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they didn't have to go out looking for, like, four other dudes.
1: Yeah. It because was, it was
0: all... Yeah.
1: I guess it's a good thing when there's only one rapist on the scene, but... Cause.
0: it made, It makes me sick to hear that he was, like so far up law enforcement's ass by like actually working there that they didn't even look at their own like they. he was giving
1: advice to homeowners on how to protect their homes uh, that he was breaking into
0: like like and obviously false information because like he broke into them (laughs) yeah you know like but like
1: makes you think how many of those homes did he go into to advise those homeowners on how to protect themselves and then
0: and how many is he casing
1: he's casing at the same time if that's how it was done. Like, I don't know exactly. It's like, oh, how it was I done. like that
0: VCR. I don't know if they had them. Oh, answer.
1: I like that picture of your daughter on the mantle. I'm going to steal that. Because he only stole like small trinkets and photographs. Why photographs? My only thought is for sexual gratification later. So.
2: I think it's rather interesting how he like went in the, his house and like, after doing everything, like had some food. Yeah. And like hung out. Or drank a beer. Yeah. And it's like, um, are you lost? <laughs> And so, like, that right there is you can't say that because he did such normal things that he would, like, that's a normal thing to do is sit, yeah. sit at home and eat and drink a beer. So, But he did that and then you, you can't sit there and plead san- insanity no. because you were doing normal things.
1: Yeah. But it also makes you think if you didn't know by the end of it that he was a former police officer, that he held a job, a steady job, and he had a home, he had a life, you would think that the guy was homeless or yeah kind of like the night the st- night stalker richard ramirez where he would go in and eat their food and stuff but he was i would say you struggling.
0: know like maybe living in his mom's basement and she co- stopped cooking for him or mm. something and you know he'd break in and have a sandwich but not or married
1: with kids but, Well, yeah the kids came home like, a bit
0: later but. so what is this his second supper is he a hobbit or something you know i
1: don't know like i found that it was a weird behavior and I don't know if, it was, if that was just his way of asserting control more so over his victims, if that's how he saw it.
0: Well, everybody's hungry after sex, for one.
1: <laughs> but sometimes he was eating before.
0: Yeah, that's weird.
1: He's sitting on the patio of the one couple's house having a beer before he even attacked the woman. But it's
2: almost like the ultimate control mm-hmm. that he just went in and took over and <laughs> helped himself.
1: I'm not uh, not only taking over your body, but I'm taking over your safe space.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is
1: no longer safe even when you take over the body because that's yep. your home. Yep. But now he's literally putting himself everywhere. Yep. Um the one oh I forgot to put it in there or I skipped it by accident. I'm not sure. So the one girl, she was 16, I think. I think I skipped a whole page, actually, I'm not gonna lie. Because I think there's two victims that I did not talk about. Um one victim was at home alone playing the piano and she was cooking a frozen pizza and she heard a noise, so she stopped. Didn't hear anything, so she went back playing. Next thing you know, she's got a knife to her throat. Not only did he sexually assault her in her parents' bedroom, but he did it three more times in different parts of the house. So he totally took her safe space, yep, like completely away from her, yep. And she was like sixteen. Another girl, he must have been watching her New York plans and stuff, because he took her out of the house, turned the TV off, closed the blinds, put the window back in that he went through, and made it look like she just left for a date that she had planned that night, and took her down somewhere else and assaulted her you know so i mean he's he thinks very well far ahead and he's clearly stalking these victims ahead of time Mm -hmm. so it's one of them is also they described i i did skip a page because i forgot to get to the good part where most of his victims had described him as being very small below the belt (laughs) (laughs) i must have skipped a fucking page i'm so sorry I will have that all up on Napoleon Syndrome. Yeah, maybe.
2: I am so small, I'm mighty, I'm going to fuck you. I don't know. That was probably very heartless. Just brings a, the funny memes to my head where it's like the guy says to you, I'm going to come and, you know, give you the best night of your life. And he shows up and it's like the size of your pinky.
1: Oh, like a micro penis? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I thought of when you said that. Was that he was small below the belt? Yeah. So yeah, suck on that joseph d'angelo but yeah that was that case any more analyzing from you guys
0: no i think that covers it (coughs) (coughs) that is really messed up
1: it is but also the best part of it though for me is the technology that has been born using that genetic genealogy to find this guy well they say
0: invention is the no, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So when you need the technology, that's when these things get worked and on. And I don't
1: see why we can't use this technology to solve the JonBenet Ramsey case. They have DNA that hasn't been tested. So get on that, Colorado.
0: Or any of them. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know why DNA testing costs so much either. But anyway, topic for another podcast. Yeah. You okay. guys have a great evening, and we'll see you next week. Good night.